reminded that we stand in grace, and it is amazing grace because we deserve wrath, but what we have received is your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your compassion in Christ. And it is the glory of grace that humbles us to remind us that of ourselves we have no good thing, but in Christ we have everything our soul desires and that we need, not merely for this life, but more importantly even for the one to come, the one promised us in the gospel, assured for us in the resurrection, and given for us to consider and hope as it was as it is recorded for us in your word. And we anticipate that day when heaven and earth will be made one, all of the consequences of sin, both in us and outside of us, will be done away, and we will live with you in righteousness forever and ever, your glory illumining the new heavens and the new earth. And so keep us fixed on this that we might live for you wisely and pursue holiness in this life. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, as we continue to make our way uh, through this psalm, we looked at verses 1 through 6 uh, last week. We'll look at verses 7 through 12 this week. Psalm 139. And as I noted, uh, when we the psalm's worship is essentially the heart's response to who God is. God reveals himself, our heart responds, and that is worship. It's not merely an emotional response, but it is a whole life response to him. And so the psalm Psalms are an aspect of that. They are the response of a regenerate heart to God, to God as he's revealed himself to be while living in a world yet still under the conditions of sin and while living in a body yet still with the presence of sin even though as a regenerate believer. And so that's what we have in the Psalms. We have the truth of God lived out in the life of the people of God. And so here it is in Psalm 139 in some of the clearest and most uh, detailed ways we have doctrine or teaching about God laid before us, but not merely as some didactic uh, piece of material, in other words, to teach us as you would read in a systematic theology, but rather to show us how it's lived out in the life of those who know him. And so it is in Psalm 139. Let me, before we look at our passage, read it, give you uh, an illustration that captures the idea, or at least one aspect, an important aspect, a comforting aspect of the idea of our section in verses 7 through 12, namely about the omnipresence of God, the presence of God in the life of his creation and in the life of his people. I'm going to read this account. It goes like this. Sir John Franklin, who lost his life looking for the Northwest Passage, wanted to blaze a trail through the snow-clad polar regions of the Pacific. In 1845, he led one of the best-equipped expeditions ever to enter the Arctic. None of them ever came back. Years later, Sir Francis McClintock discovered what remained of the expedition, including a collection of books and bones. Among the books was Franklin's copy of John Todd's student manual, turned down at a page as though the dead explorer's finger were pointing to the place. On that turned down page, almost the last page of the book, is to be found this dialogue. Are you afraid to die? No. No. Why does the uncertainty of another state give you no concern? Because God has said to me, Fear not, when thou pass through the water, I will be with thee. That was it. In the frozen north, Sir Franklin knew the abiding presence of God. A monument was erected to the memory of this navigator of the north. As a matter of fact, there's the menu. That's, uh, that picture's up there. That's where he died. I found that and thought, uh, that's helpful. It's just this barren kind of region. It's with ice and water and snow. And uh, there is the monument actually today uh, erected where that expedition was discovered and where he died. But it was there uh, that this was this memory of this navigator of the north. Uh, this, uh, this monument was erected, and Lord Tennyson wrote its inscription. And the inscription from Lord Tennyson says this, Not here the white north has thy bones, and thou, heroic sailor soul, art passing on thy happier voyage now toward no earthly pole. 
The point being is, as this author concludes, distance does not separate us from God. So there was Sir John Franklin out in the plains, the icy plains of the Arctic Sea, dying with the men dying around him, him knowing that his days were numbered and soon he would leave this world to enter into the next world. And yet he had as his comfort in those dying moments and at the very end of his life that he was not alone. The God whom he knew was a God who was with him and upholding him even in death. When no one else was around, even as far as the eye could see, he had comfort in his heart that God was near. That is the omnipresence of God. And that is what David is celebrating and delighting in in our passage this morning. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, not through the whole psalm this time, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll look at this more closely. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the night around me will be night, or the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And this is then a wonderful celebration of the regenerate's heart delight in these glories of God, these attributes of God. And the first one that we were confronted with that we looked at last week just briefly in verses 1 through 6 was the omniscience of God. And that is the first point here of uh, the delighted in God. And he was delighted in God's knowledge, God's knowledge, which as we've been saying and we'll get in uh, and I'll mention again is that God is an infinite being. That means he knows no bounds. God is spirit. He is not in any way circumferenced by anything. He is infinite spirit. And therefore, whatever is true of God is infinite in its degree. And so when we speak of God's knowledge, it means he has infinite knowledge. There is nothing that, that binds or closes in or in any way limits God's knowledge. It is a perfect knowledge. Sometimes you've heard that referred to as omniscience. It means all-knowing. That God is an all-knowing God. And when we looked at this, we saw David's reaction to it here, which is the reaction of every believer when confronted, not only confronted with intellectually, but confronted with it in the experience of the heart of the one who knows God, this truth of God. And so he celebrates here in the fact that this knowledge of God is not a distant kind of knowledge, it's not a detached kind of knowledge, but it is a personal knowledge. It is not impersonal. It's not the impersonal knowledge of a deist, we said, who has it uh, in popular deism, as it's most known anyway, is this idea of a God who, who created all things and set it up and then left it to run by these principles that he just built into his creation, both moral principles and physical principles. You know, it's not that God. It is a God who is personal. It is a God who knows David not merely as one among many, but he knows God, God knows David as an individual. He knows him personally. And so we see that throughout here is that you've searched me, you've known me, you know my rising up, my sitting down, my thoughts, my words. It is a personal knowledge. It is an active knowledge, we said. It's not merely a personal knowledge. It's something that God just has on his own. But it is a seeking and a searching kind of knowledge. He says, you have searched me and known me. He says, you have scrutinized my path. And we noted that that word scrutinized could be translated as winnowed. In other words, you discern all of my actions. You discern my ways, knowing the principle out of which my actions flow. You know me thoroughly. You know me not merely in what I I actually do, but you know my thoughts and my intentions. 
intentions, you know the goals and the purposes and the motivations behind everything that I think and say and do. There is an exhaustive knowledge of me. It is a personal knowledge that he has of us. It is an active knowledge. He is actively engaged in your life. And it is a divine knowledge. He said this knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's not merely that God, like us, has information. He just has a whole lot more. It is to say that God's knowledge is so perfect, it is so full, it is so comprehensive of us, that it is on a completely other plane. In other words, God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows more about us and more that is true about our own hearts and motivations than we even know about ourselves. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, it's a very little thing that you should be examined, uh, that I should be examined by you. He says, I don't even examine myself. In other words, I don't even know myself perfectly. I'm not even the final judge of Paul. God is, because God is the one who truly knows the motives of men's hearts and the thoughts of our hearts. God knows it is a perfect knowledge, and the response to that is to find comfort and to say in delight of who God is, it is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. It is a perfect knowledge. And we note it as well, as with all of these things, one way that that demonstrates in how we relate to God, how we relate to God in prayer, the comfort that even as we seek help from God, we can seek help from him and know that he knows us and what we need even better than what we do. And Paul says the spirit groans with groans too deep for words, even as we pray. Even when we go to God in prayer, we pray ignorantly. We pray not really even know things, knowing things as they actually are. And so we can pray with the confidence, well, I may not see things perfectly. I may be deficient in my view of myself and this world and what God is doing, but God in no way owns those deficiencies and so he can, when I pray, I can have the confidence that the spirit who searches the deep things of God certainly knows me and the father knows what the mind of the spirit is, the spirit intercedes for us and we can have confidence. And so this is this perfect knowledge of God. And then, going with omniscience, the fact that God knows and connected is that in, in, in harmony with that, I mean, even by necessity, is the fact that God is also present. God sees all things and knows all things because he's also present everywhere. And that's what we look at here in verses 7 through 12. And first, let me note just briefly then the doctrine that he is responding to. And this is then the doctrine of omnipresence. And, and I'll do this just to give you a very broad overview of this idea. It is to say, as I've already mentioned, God's infinite nature in relation to his being. In other words, he is everywhere at the same time in the fullness of his being. Now, we're not going to get lost in a lot of stuff, but let me, let me at least define it to you, and then we'll talk about it uh, as we go through. Here are a couple of definitions up there. One is this, as a way that this is defined. God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation, or what amounts to the same thing, that everything and everybody are immediately in the presence of God. So that's us here in this room, and we'll talk about a uniqueness of that in the new covenant at the end, but it is that God is present here, and he's present the same in every place. Again, another is this. God's nature is not extended in space. He is without spatial dimension, and yet in him all things consist. Now, this is hard for us to get our minds around. By the way, I can't go past this blue tape here. It was put on. I feel like I'm an actor on stage. You know, there's my mark. But, but Michael put it up there for me. Because, you know, if you're watching on film, you kind of go off and then back on, and uh, it's not good. So anyway... It is to say this, in relation to that, it is to say that, to say God isn't spatial, right? We don't generally talk and think about these things, but it is to say this, when we think about God's omnipresence, we're not to think about as if God kind of started here and he extended himself all the way over to the other side and it just goes on and on and on so there's no other piece of tape to tell where he can't go. It just goes on and on forever. So you would think it's not like a line that starts here and just a line that extends on ever forever because that would make God in parts. That would say, well, then God is more in a part here than he is over here. To say it's not spatial is to say that the idea of space, even as we think of it, is a created reality. It is to say God is 100% fully, completely, in every conceivable way here as much as he is here, as much as he is here. 
So that's the idea of spatial limits, is that God simply is, and he is everywhere. So if you were to be on Mars right now, God wouldn't be any more, there wouldn't be any more or less of God there than there is of God here. That's the idea. And let me, if you say, wow, that's just a bunch of theologians who've had too much coffee and nothing better to do, (laughs) to come up with these kind of things, or too much wine, I don't know. Listen to the way Paul describes this in Acts chapter 17, okay? Paul says this, and he's speaking to pagans here, but he's describing God, and he says this in Acts 17, verse 27. He says, and that they would seek God, he's saying God has established the appointed boundaries of you know, peoples, and he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live in him. In his world, in this universe, all of us, he says, live and move and exist or have our being. You can't, in other words, nobody can escape God. He is, he is everywhere. That's the way he describes it. You'll remember Solomon described it. It says, I'm building this temple. He says, but it's not as if you're located in this temple, even though the smoke filled it and the glory of God showed himself to say, this is where I have, this is where I have established my name will be and where my people will worship me. But then he said, heavens, you know this, right? Heavens and the highest heavens cannot, cannot contain him. Uh, There is no way that he can be in any way contained. Again, he is an infinite being. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time, but I want to just explain this a bit more because that might be confusing as you read certain statements in Scripture. Uh, God manifests himself. It is, though God is everywhere present at the same time in the fullness of who he is, the way that he shows that presence is different in different places. So if we were just to say through the Old Testament, God sometimes reveals himself in a burning bush, sometimes in a cloud, sometimes in a pillar of fire, sometimes by smoke and thunder. In a variety of different ways, God manifests and shows his presence, though he's not more or less there before that event or after that event. He is there in the same in both times. Sometimes God's presence or God is spoken of spatially. So we hear that God is far away or near to an individual. We say that God is far away or that God is near to me. Now sometimes we use that language or how that language is meant Uh, is in the sense of our own experience of God. God feels far away. God feels near. I'm in a time of prayer. God, God is near me. I feel him. There's a sense of fellowship, a sense of nearness, a sense of communion with him in which he is so near it's as if he is standing right next to me or I'm engulfed just into the glory of his being. And then there's times where we feel like God is, feels a million miles away. And so we speak in spatial terms, but what is, being, what is meant is the experience of God in that moment. He feels far away. Well, God didn't go somewhere. He's not any further away, but our experience of who he is and of his presence is different in certain moments. And so he's spoken of at times as being near or far away. And yet, he's never, again, no more near or further away. Listen to Jeremiah 23. Just listen, verse 23. He says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so do I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel the heavens fill the heavens and the earth? In other words, I'm never further or nearer. I see and know and am present in all and all the time. But sin can separate that. So again, we speak of God as near or far in the way that it feels. And you see examples of this in Scripture. In Proverbs 15, 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So the wicked he's far away from. It's not like, again, he's distant and far away as though he's in another county. It is to say that there is no relationship between them. There is no experience and fellowship of the wicked and God. He removes himself from that part, though in him we live and we move and we breathe. 
the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is near how? It's not that he opened the door and he walked in and is near. It is that he makes himself known to that one who is broken and crushed in spirit. He knows him, makes himself known in his compassion. He makes himself known in his grace. He makes his presence known. Matter of fact, one person commenting on that in Psalm uh, 34, 18 says this, going to God and seeking his face does not consist in making a pilgrimage. We don't go to Mecca. We don't go to some stone. We don't go to, to the Vatican in Rome or whatever. You know, so there is, God is, there's a more holy place in that sense. God is nearer there than another place. He says, going to God and seeking his face does not consist in making a pilgrimage, but in self-abasement and repentance. Why? Because it has to do with fellowship. It has to do with the experience of God. One other quick thing before we look specifically at this with David. There's another, for example, God is sometimes spoken of as coming and going. So God is spoken of as uh, coming in Genesis 11.5 down to see the city. The, it says in Genesis 11.5 that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. So when they were building the Tower of Babel, it says that God came down. And you see that language throughout the Old Testament. We're, we're going to mention that later in relation to the coming of Christ. But it says that he goes down, he went down to see. It's again, not saying that God was ignorant, he heard a report, he says, let me get in the car and go over, see what's going on down there. No, the reason that the scripture uses that language here, is it's already said, actually, when he flooded the world, he knows the thoughts and intentions of man and their deeds are wicked all the time. Like he knows it, he sees it all at once, right? So he didn't have to come down to see that, he simply, he, he knows that. But when, he, when the language of coming down is used, it's used to speak, particularly there in Genesis 11, is to say that God is giving a judicial affirmation. He's saying, I'm going to judge, and this is yet another witness. It's spoken in this, uh, well, you've heard of this sometimes, anthropomorphic, this language of as though he were a man going to investigate, to impress upon the readers the point that God is about to judge, and he is just in this judgment. He is right in what he's doing. It's affirming that knowledge of God. And that's in relation to knowledge, it's the same thing. So as when Abraham offered up Isaac and he says, now I know. Well, God had already made the covenant. He had already justified him. He had already declared what was going to happen in Abraham's life and after Abraham's life and all that. God didn't gain knowledge. But what he was is he was affirming to Abraham, one, he was affirming to the nation of Israel that Abraham is the right one to be the progenitor of that nation and of faith. And he's used that way in Romans chapter Four. It is an affirmation to the readers of Scripture, both to Abraham, to the nation of Israel, and to the readers that this is a man who was obedient, and obedience is what marked him being the father, as it were, of the nation, uh, being the one through whom God would form the nation. And so that is the idea then of omnipresence. Notice one other thing here now. Notice when you look at Psalm 139, one quick point that again we'll, we'll build on later, but here I'll mention it. He says, right at the beginning, he says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And here I would just have you notice this and I won't chase this through scripture. I'll just let this, this verse stand. Is note that when we read the Psalms, uh, one of the devices that's part of poetry in general, and, and particularly you see it very, very often in the Psalms, is called parallelism. And that is when in one verse you have a statement, and then it's followed by another statement that says the same thing in different words. That's pretty simple. And so that's what he's saying here. Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence is restating the same truth in different terms. And here, simply we would notice this, that where God's spirit is, God is present. There is a connection between God's presence and God's spirit. Now there's, again, I keep saying this, but we'll come back to that later. So that's the doctrine of omnipresence. It is to say that God is everywhere in the same place in the fullness of his being all times. He's not a spatial being like part of him is here, more of him is over there or whatever. He simply is. Now, now if you contemplate that for a while, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's beyond what we can fully get. And, and you put that not only into our little life and the planet Earth, but you put that into the entire universe and in heaven. So in, in reality, God in terms of who he is as God isn't any more present here in one sense than he is in heaven. 
or than he is in hell. But the experience of that presence is different. And on that note, then let's look at David's experience here as a, as a, as a window into our own in Psalm 139. And there are three truths then here as David delights in this of David delighting in God's presence. So there are three truths of David or our delight in God's presence of the believer's delight in God's presence. And the first is this and this we'll spend a little bit more time on this first one uh, than the other two but the first is this that God's presence is all pervasive. God's presence is all pervasive. It's limitless. Again, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Now, interestingly, it's about, I don't know, at least in, in, in the looking that I did, about half and half. Quite a few commentators or people write, uh, mentioning this passage take this in a negative sense as if David is here talking about uh, where under conviction of sin can I go away or where could I get away from this piercing uh, gaze of God or presence of God. Uh, but that's, that's not necessarily the best way to read this. The idea here isn't negative, but it's actually positive. He's simply using poetic language to give and to explain and to help us feel this all-pervasive reality of God's presence. It is merely, merely the language used to say, you could put it like this, even if I could flee away, where could I go? Even if I could take the wings of the dawn, even if I could go to heaven or to Sheol or the remotest part of the sea, even if I could hide myself in darkness, all of that would be futile because God is there. In other words, there's no way that I can escape him and that's, or there's no way that I cannot be surrounded by his his presence. And for them, him, this is something, and for us, that we should take great, great delight in. And so look how he describes it. And really, this language is meant simply to say everywhere, <laughs> that it's all pervasive. That's the, that's the idea of it. Uh, and he says, where can I go? And then he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, uh, behold, you are there. And the idea is simply there. If I go to the highest conceivable point or the lowest conceivable point, you are there. You are present. There is, there is no height and there is no depth at which I could ever be outside of your presence. That's the idea. Now these are sometimes seen, in, or they are also, not merely the heavens, and not merely Sheol as some lower part of the earth. Sometimes it's described as just like the center of the earth or the lowest part of the earth. But it is to say merely this, looking at it from a human perspective, if we take it outside of just distance and see that there's, there's implication even of more here, one said it well and said like this, God is present everywhere on both sides of the grave. On both sides of the grave. So if I were to die and be up in heaven, and we could also see here the implication if I were to die and to go down into the earth. And many want to see here even a picture of, of hell. As a matter of fact, the King James Version uh, translate this word here. It's, it's Sheol. Sheol is actually the way it would look in Hebrew, transliterated Sheol. Uh, Translates it in different ways as the grave, as hell, or the pit. So it, it has a variety of different ways this term is used. It can refer to a place of judgment where the wicked go. It can also in different places simply refer to the grave, the end of life. That's how I, they translate it sometimes, the grave. And it can also refer to the place out of which the righteous will be delivered. If you'll remember in Psalm 16, this was in anticipation of Christ. He says, he will deliver him from Sheol. Right? He will not be kept. The idea is the grave, speaking of the Messiah. But here is Sheol, this Sheol is set in contrast with heaven. Set in contrast with heaven. And while primarily meant to picture distance, the height of heaven and the depths of the grave, or the uncertain world of death, it is possible to, and as many take it, to allude here even to this idea, that in heaven where your presence is to bless, and in Sheol, or in the place and the abode of the ungodly where your presence is there to judge. And so this brings up a question. Whatever his intent here, 
it, it does bring up the question, is God present in hell in the same way that he's present in heaven? We know that he's present in heaven. That's the whole thrust of scriptures to be reunited in this glorious presence of God in heaven, heaven and earth. Is God present in hell as well? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, God is present in hell as judge, and he's present in heaven to bless. Again, there's no place that God is not. When it says in Revelation that those who are put into the pit will be tormented day and night forever and ever, it is the Lord's presence who is tormenting them. The difference is, is that the experience of God's presence is different. In heaven, the experience is one of bliss and joy and delight. In hell, God's presence is experienced as one of displeasure, of anger, and of judgment. So he is present in both places, but the experience of that presence, again, is in different ways. But David here is meaning this more positively, and he's, he's simply pointing out that it doesn't matter how high I go, it doesn't matter where I go, upward or down, it doesn't matter what side of the grave that I'm on, God's presence is there. And then he gives it another description. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, and this is really a beautiful language here. The, I just found this interesting. The Septuagint, if you remember, translates this as if I receive my wings or if I receive my wings and could fly to the remotest place is the idea. One captured the idea of it well, uh, of that verse. He says, this, in paraphrasing David's word, he says this, if I could fly with the swiftness with which the dawn of the morning spreads itself over the eastern sky towards the extreme rest and alight there and stay there. In other words, if, if I could grab a hold when the sun comes up and the light begins to go over across the globe, if I could lay hold of that and hold on and be taken all the way to the other end of the globe, it wouldn't change my experience and the reality of the presence of God. As a matter of fact, uh, I just thought this was interesting. Uh, there's the speed of light. I don't know if Mike pulls that up. But I pulled this out. So if we were to maybe put it into some more specific terms. The speed of light, it's apparently in a vacuum. I know y'all already knew this, but for my sake, we'll put this up here. The speed of light in a vacuum tra it travels at 186,282 miles per second. So faster than the new Tesla truck. Tesla truck, I'm sorry. If you've seen that, it's really fast. Uh, so that's how fast light travels. In miles per hour, light speed is, well, a lot. Uh, about 670,616,629 miles per hour. That's fast. If you could travel the speed of light, you could go around the Earth 7.5 times in one second. So that's just a little way to demonstrate this is what he's talking about. So it's saying if you could travel as fast as the speed of light, think about this. If you could travel as fast as the speed of light, if you were to start here, and okay, that's my superpower, speed of light, right? And so I'm going to exercise my superpower, and I'm going to go the speed of light for 1,000 years constantly. The idea is when you finish that 1,000 years, which would be a number beyond what we can fathom, you're no more or less outside of God's presence. He's not any less there than when you began. That's the idea. That's the infinite nature of his being. It's like you could never be any more or less in the presence of God. And that's what the idea David is saying here. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I go to the remotest part or the deepest part of the sea, it doesn't matter. God, you are present there. There's no way to escape it. There's no way to escape it. Now again, for David, this is a means of great comfort. And for the believer, this is a means of great comfort. This is a means of encouragement to mean that God is there and there his hand, as he'll say later, later will lead me. There his hand will guide me. But as with all of these attributes of God, the experience of them in a regenerate heart is different than the experience of them in an unregenerate heart and should be, and even a believer in sin, which I'll mention here in just a sec. For the unbeliever, this language, interestingly, is used in uh, Amos chapter 9. And just listen, you don't have to turn there, but Amos chapter 9, verse 2. And he's speaking of those who would try to escape God and his 
God's presence uh, because of his judgment against sin. Amos says this, though they dig into Sheol, in other words, if they dug a hole down to the very center of the earth, the deepest, darkest, faraway place in the earth that could be could, that could be imagined, he says, from there, that place, my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there, I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it will slay them and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. So that's the language and time in terms of the unbelieving. It is to say you cannot escape. The deepest part, you go to heaven. If you try to escape up, God would find you there and bring you to justice. If you try to dig to the deepest and darkest place of the earth, God's hand will find you there and bring you to judgment. If you go off into the farthest way of land, God will find you there and you will be held accountable. So for the unbelieving, this is something to be taken seriously, that there is no escaping the presence or the judgment of God. There is no hiding from sin and from the consequences of sin. But for believers, there's an aspect of that as well, even. And this truth then is, as well as a comfort, it is sanctifying. Because what does sin want to do? Sin always wants to hide that's what sin, that's, what, that's why when people sin, they generally do their sinning in the darkness and at night. Uh, unless being given over more, the brazenness of sin does it in broad daylight. But the idea is that sin wants to hide from God. We see that in Adam and Eve. What they want to do, they sinned, they tried to cover themselves, they tried to hide. What do you do when you sin or you have something of shame? You try to hide it. You try to cover it over. Very often we can do that. And rather than bringing it to the light and confessing it and so forth, there's a thousand ways we do that. But there is no escaping the, God's knowledge of that sin and his dealing with it. Uh, one said this, Calvin, we are ashamed to let men know and witness our delinquencies. Now here's, here's a sanctifying aspect of this uh, understanding the presence of God. And when there's sin in our life. Uh, we are ashamed to let men know and witness our delinquencies, but we are as indifferent to what God may think of us as if our sins were covered and veiled from his inspection. And so the idea is this, like how inconsistent we are sometimes. Like when we understand that God is present, we somehow feel brazen to sin, though God is present, but feel reticent to sin if another person were present. As if someone were in the room, we wouldn't dare do certain things because they might see us. But it somehow is in a matter of indifference if God sees us. And so if that's the case, then we go and we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to, help me to understand this because that is totally wrong. I should never feel comfortable sinning knowing that you are present with me. I'm taking Christ in that sin, essentially. Certainly not more concerned about it than if somebody else were there. But yet we do do foolish things like that at times and need repentance. I think one of the greatest examples of that uh, you can know is uh, in the uh, Old Testament with, does any name come to mind? How about Jonah? God gave Jonah a command he didn't like. And now Jonah, Jonah knew Psalm 139. Jonah, Jonah was not ignorant of God's presence uh, among his people. And yet, listen to this. Jonah received, as you remember, the command to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to do that. And so, Scripture records for us in verse 3 of Jonah 1, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to get out of here and get away from the Lord where he revealed himself to me there as if somehow I can outrun God. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, and was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down to go with him, and so forth. From, he says in verse, at the end of verse 3, from, away from, out from the presence of the Lord. And of course, what happened? He's on a boat, a storm rose, right? And God sends a, a great fish and swallows Jonah and coughs him up uh, on the shore to go to Nineveh. And we certainly could look at that and say that's foolish, and yet we can sometimes do that in our own lives. Somehow think that we, if we just ignore it, 
or if we stay away from people or situations or places that might be a means of conviction to us, that somehow God is not dealing with that sin or going to see that sin. But he does, and he will. We cannot flee from the presence of God. So knowing this should be a very sanctifying reality, but also comforting, comforting. And it is for this reason, because in those moments when we are the most aware of our weakness, when we are the most actually convicted by our sin, when we are most afraid, when we feel the most dependent upon divine help and aid, it is in those moments that the presence of God should be to us our greatest comfort because God is near to us in those moments when we turn to him. Listen to Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever. So remember this, so you'll get you hear it enough, we get used to it. These big and very important, we can put it in you know, more kind of uh, common terms, but the idea is of God's transcendence and eminence. It means that God is transcendent. He's other than we are. He's out there. He's God. He's on a totally different plane that only God is on. And then when we speak of God's eminence, we say that he's near. But he's near. He's, he's not a part of his creation but he is involved with his creation and with the lives of his people. And so this is what Isaiah is talking about. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, that's transcendence. I dwell in a high and holy place and also, this is eminence, with the contrite and the lowly of spirit to revive the heart of the contrite. So what is it to know that God is near? It means that even in our moments of our greatest weakness, weakness and brokenness over sin, to know that God is near to the humbled heart, to the truly humbled heart, and to the contrite heart, to the grieving heart, to the weak heart, it means that we remember that God hears us. He's present with us in that moment, and he's ready to show us mercy when we come to him in true repentance and trust and faith. One thing before we go on, this is beautifully captured, we know that, in Psalm 23. Extremely practical, but remember what he says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The greatest valley of fear, the greatest time that we could feel alone, like Sir John Franklin out on the plains of the ice, walking in the darkness in a building we're unfamiliar with, no one's around. If we were scared, if you're a police officer or whatever, it is to say this, that God is near and his presence is comforting. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the most grievous and threatening situation, I am not alone. The believing heart can say, God is with me. He's with me in it. The next is then that we delight, part of God's presence to delight in is not, it's all pervasive. We can't go, it's also redeeming. And look at what David says here. I, I searched around for a better word, but I think this one is the best I could come up with. It's redeeming. Look at what he says in verse 10. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So again, he's not merely acknowledging this as a, as a truth that he delights in. He's saying, even there, I can never escape your guiding hand, your hand that will lead me, your hand that will give me direction, your presence that will be there to show me the way out and to show me the way through this situation. You will never, I will never be without that guiding presence of you. His hand is, is merely, obviously it's not a hand doesn't reach down out of heaven like a cartoon, but he's saying there you're present, you're, you're active toward me, you're exercising your power in my life, you're leading me. I cannot ever escape from a place where you won't be there to do that. And we need that. Let me give you just one example that we can in our own way relate to. And this is from Moses in Exodus 33. So in Exodus 33, uh, they've already built the golden calf. God was, Moses was up with God on the mountain. He says, hey, go down, look what these people did. They go down. He says, Aaron's let them get out of control. It was a mess. Uh, they deal with that situation. And Moses is again with the Lord. And as you know, there were just problem after problem after problem that he had with this obstinate people. They were complaining. They were grumbling. They were disobedient. They made everything hard for him and his leadership. It was very, very hard. 
And so Moses is talking with God after even this whole golden calf, and it's like, what in the world with these people? You leave them alone for a minute and look at what they're doing. And then so Moses is talking with God, and he says this. He says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, and that I might find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then what was the, uh, the uh, comfort that God gave to him? Well, in Exodus 33, 14, he says this. Here it is, Moses. Here it is. Here is what will go with you. As you are assigned by me to lead this obstinate people through the wilderness, as you are the one who has to be the one who instructs them, though you know that they won't listen, even at certain times having them mount up in rebellion against you, how can I comfort you, Moses? And here's his response in verse 14. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not by your going with us, is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said, I will do this thing also for which you've spoken, for you found favor in my sight. And then Moses asked to see his glory. And later on in chapter 34, when God shows him this glory, shows him a veiled sense of this glory, his backside, I've heard it described, uh, my old pastors is the, the afterburners, as it were, of these. And he says this in verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud... Okay, and when God descended in the cloud, God wasn't more or less in terms of his being present, but he's making his presence known in a way. How did he make that present known to Moses? He descended in a cloud. And he stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed by in front of him. And we know this. The Lord is proclaimed to him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, but by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. The point here is this, is that Moses was looking at a difficult task, an impossible task, a fearful task, an intimidating task. What was his strength to fulfill what God had called him to do? Is that my presence will go with you. What did his presence look like? His presence looked like particularly an affirmation to Moses. In this case, it was something visible, but what he affirmed wasn't merely that I'll visibly be with you, but I will affirm to you the character of the one who will always be with you. The one who is gracious, compassionate, ready to forgive. And I will make my presence known essentially in this way by impressing those truths upon you and upholding you and giving you the wisdom and giving you the strength and giving you the ability to carry on in the task that I've given you. I'll make my presence go with you. And, and it certainly would be a visible presence. How would God's presence be known as he says so that the nations will know? And it was indeed for the works that God did on their behalf it was Mount Sinai it was parting the waters later when they go into the land it was parting Jordan it was Jericho falling it was the victories that God gave them and the things that God did that were supernatural it says he was with them in a more subtle way we can remember Nehemiah how does this work out that Nehemiah was sent back this is after the people were exiled and coming back into the land Nehemiah was one of the leaders you'll remember that God used to, to bring to establish them back in the land he helped build the walls uh, in Jerusalem and Nehemiah who was a, a cupbearer for the king uh, prayed to the Lord as he was giving in the cup when he was going to tell the king that you know his heart was burdened and he, knew he wanted to go and help his people people and it says that in everything Nehemiah did this is a repeated refrain and the good hand of the Lord was with him the good hand what it means then is that God gave him God gave him success in the thing that God had called him to do God's presence was with him and so that is the idea of God's presence is redeeming let me know quickly here that God's presence is comforting and we already of course have mentioned that but let's look at it more specifically here 
Even there, he says, your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me no matter where I go. In verse 11, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the light is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Darkness often has the idea of ignorance, uncertainty, and fear. Ignorance or uncertainty and fear. In contrast to light, which has the idea of understanding, truth, and certainty. So David says, you are my light and my salvation. In you I have certainty. In you I have truth. In you I have understanding. I have a way forward. I have things I can hold on to. And you give me understanding. And the point of the, here is simply this, that while ignorance and uncertainty and fear may confront me in this life, my confidence and comfort is that you are not as weak as I am, but understand all things perfectly. That's our comfort. Because I'll tell you what, as you well know, we spend a lot of our lives in ignorance. Don't we? We spend a lot of our lives in ignorance. But here's the comfort. I love this out of Daniel chapter 2. This always stands out in my mind. Is This is when Daniel was given, uh, given interpretation of a dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And God had delivered him and his friends and, and others. And it says, and this is Daniel's prayer in response of gratitude to this being revealed to him. He says this, uh, let the name of God be blessed. It says, you know, it talks about his sovereignty in prayer to God. It's, it's he who changes times and epochs, removes kings and establishes them. And so forth. And then he says this in verse 22 of chapter 2. It is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Now I find that extremely comforting. Because a lot of my life and your life and our life is in darkness. We don't know the secret things of God. We don't know his secret will and his sovereignty. We don't know what's going to happen to our nation, to our lives, to our job, to our children. We don't know these things. There's no way for us to know them. But the, the comfort that we have is to say, but with God, he does. It's not darkness to him. While I might be blind and I might be ignorant and I might be in fear and I may not be able to see, God is not weak as I am. God is not ignorant as I am. God is not confused as I might be. But as David or Daniel said, that with him he sees the light. He says, and light dwells with him. He knows what is in the darkness. He knows what is in the unknown. He knows what is in the uncertain. He knows what his sovereign purposes are. He knows. And so we take comfort in that and say the darkness is not dark to you and darkness and light are alike. Now, I want to just very briefly as we come in here, I won't, won't get through everything that I had here, but we'll finish it up. I want to expand this and say this, the third point is it's expanded. And uh, is this, isn't it? And so it's uh, the doctrine, the experience, and here's an expansion of it. And this goes under experience, but it's the new covenant ministry. How do we experience this in light of the new covenant, in the light of the coming of Christ, in the light of the resurrection of Christ, in the light of Pentecost, and the sending of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me just make a fascinating note to you, something for you to chew on. We won't take this too far. But when remember I said that in the, the, in the language of coming and going, it, that, that has a spatial feel to it. We can understand that. But it's not that God is more coming and more somewhere than he is another place, but he makes his presence known in a new way. Well, think about that in relation to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son. So when it says he came into the world, it doesn't mean that the eternal Son was not in the world before. He clearly was. He was the eternal son. Paul will talk about he was the rock that followed them. He was the spiritual food out of which they lived in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The son of God was not more present in the world, but the son of God's presence in the world was now different. It was united to humanity. So sometimes we say, did God, did Jesus give up his omnipresence? Did he give up his divine being? In some way he became a less God for a little while? No, he was fully God and that's the mystery of the incarnation. But in some way the person of the son was embodied in 
the Lord Jesus Christ, a real physical human body. It also says this of the Spirit, when speaking of Christ, that he had the Spirit without measure. That doesn't mean that the Spirit, as we looked in Psalm 144, is not still sustaining, or 104, sustaining life, and the Spirit isn't still filling the heavens and the earth. It is so to say that Christ had the Spirit without measure isn't to say that's the only place that the Holy Spirit was. It is to say in a unique fullness, which is still to us a mystery, the Spirit was present in Christ as the God-man, the eternal Son clothed in flesh. Now, there's a point to all this. It's not just to, uh, to talk about some theological ideas. And here's the point. And let me read this first. Uh, this is to maybe summarize what I said in, uh, in a helpful way. It says, God the Son, one author did, did not literally come into the world in the sense that he came to a place where he was not before. It intends rather to convey the fact that the Son of God uniquely manifested himself in the world and to men in and by human flesh. And the same with the Spirit. And so what does that mean then for us? How does that connect to Psalm 139? In this way, when Christ died... When he was risen, after he spent 40 days with the apostles and uh, others, and he ascended back to the Father, what happened? He says, I will send you from the Father the Spirit. That was Pentecost. And then he came, and it was the flames of fire and the tongues and all of those, those things that happened that manifest the presence of the Spirit. And Acts 2.33 says this from the lips of Peter, talking about this event. He says that Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father and received the promise of the Spirit. And he says, that's what you're seeing. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people of God, and the new covenant ministry of the Spirit is or has taken this presence of God and intensified it. Now the presence of God isn't merely in the temple. Now the presence of God in some unique way isn't merely in his leading hand in my life. Now the presence of God as it's experienced by his people isn't only as the the apostles did in Christ, the spirit uniquely in Christ. Now he says this, the mystery of the new covenant is Christ in you. Christ in you. If you are a believer in Christ, then there is a presence of God that you know that none of the Old Testament saints even knew in the fullness. None of them. That's the mystery that was revealed. There is a fellowship with God that even David who wrote this psalm would not fully have understood and appreciated. Listen to this. There's so much to say here. It's very hard not to say more, but I do want to at least say this. This is the promise of Jesus. He says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you a helper. The helper is the one who the world could not know, even though they saw him manifest in my life. But I'm going to send him to you, and when I send him to you, even though I'm not physically present, I will be present with you. I will be here, because that same spirit you saw in me is going to be in you. And then he says this, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he says later, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And listen, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him. That means in a believer by the Spirit in some way that is a mystery to us and yet true, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit reside in a believer in an intimate way that will be fully realized in heaven but is realized now in our walk with Him. Well, there's... I'll mention them. There's many ways that that shows itself out in fellowship, what Jesus talks about here in sanctification. Romans 8 says, if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, in that same passage says, is the spirit of God, is the spirit, or is the spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to him. What's the evidence of being a believer is that you have evidence of the spirit in your life. What is the evidence of the spirit in your life? Well, there's a lot, but right there in Romans 8, it is that you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You're dealing, you're being sanctified, and your mind is not set on the things of the world, but the things of the spirit, of the word. And regarding contentment, it is that Christ says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he has a nearness to us that we need to ask him to help us to understand. If you look at the prayer on the back of your bulletin, that's part of the prayer there, is that we would understand this new covenant ministry of the spirit in our lives. Let me give you this last quote and then we're going to come into the table. This quote is actually from Augustine. Augustine. 
And he kind of pulls together this idea of the mercy of God and the presence of God and how we run to him uh, even, even when there's sin that we need to confess. But he says this, when you want to do something bad, you withdraw from the public and hide in your house where no enemy may see you. From those parts of the house that are open and visible, you remove yourself to go into your own private room. But even here in your private chamber, you fear guilt from some other direction. So you withdraw into your heart and there you meditate. But he is even more deeply inward than your heart, speaking of God. Hence, no matter where you flee, he is there. You would flee from yourself would you will you not follow yourself wherever you flee but since there is one even more deeply inward than yourself there is no place where you may flee from an angered God except to a God who is pacified in the cross there is absolutely no place for you to flee to do you want to flee from him as Augustine wisely tells us flee to him not from him you cannot escape But if we have a truly repentant heart, we don't need to. But because we come to the one who crucified his son in place of sinners that welcomes everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance and trust. And that's what we remember in the table this morning. So as the men come forward, let me pray. And then they'll hand out the elements. And we'll remember the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your word. Help us. Give us understanding. These are truths that we can acknowledge, that we can intellectually comprehend, but they are truths that we need you by your spirit to give us an understanding of them in our hearts. And even us as believers who have walked with you for a while still know so little of the fullness of this. And so we ask you, teach us, be our teacher, sanctify us, comfort us, lead us, show us what it means to be always in your presence and to live there. And for unbelievers, Lord, who may be here who don't yet know it, let them know the futility the futility of acting as though they can live as though this is not the most important reality of their lives and their eternity. Make them know that there is no way they can escape you. There is no way they can hide from you. There is no way that they can avoid you. That you will hold them to account for everything that you are right now observing and seeing in their lives. But let them know that, as Gustin said, When repentant, we can flee to you and cry for mercy. And so as we remember the table, help us to remember that you are, even this morning, as always, present among us, O Christ. We are the place where your presence dwells uniquely. We are your people. And so help us to come to you in worship, repentance, comfort, and encouragement as we remember you in this table. In your name, Jesus, amen.